Hello and welcome to Even the Trunchbull, our show about children's books and why we still love them as adults. She's Nina. They're Matt. And we think that children's books are for everyone because we've all been kids. Even, Even the, the Trunchbull. They're all mistakes, children. Filthy, nasty things. Glad I never was one. From Roald Dahl's beloved Matilda, despite her protestations. Each episode, we review one picture book and one chapter book. We've started off with books that we read as kids, but if you've got a book that you'd like us to review, especially if you are currently a kid, please get in touch. You can email us on eventhetrunchable at gmail.com or catch us on Twitter and Facebook at TrunchblePod. This month, in honour of everyone going back to school, our theme is We Don't Need No Education. Yeah, so we're doing The Wind Singer classic from our childhood by William Nicholson. There's lots in there about the oppressive nature of exams, um, so that's going to be great. But first, we've got a lovely picture book to talk about. Yeah, our picture book is The Year I Didn't Go to School by Giselle Potter. And it's something a bit special and unusual, isn't it, Matt? Would you like to tell us about it? Yes. So The Year I Didn't Go to School, it's a picture book about a kid who spends a year out of school with her parents who take her off kind of round Italy with a travelling sort of street circus act, doing a puppet show and getting into all kinds of different scrapes. Living in a van. Yeah. (laughs) But what's really lovely about it and what's kind of different about it, it's an autobiography. And I've never come across this before in a kid's book, so it has all the kind of like whimsy and charm and really lovely illustrations that kids' books always have. But there's a little author's note as well addressed directly to the kid reading the book. Giselle Potter telling us that when she was a little girl, her parents did take her off around Europe with a travelling circus act. I love that because I autobiographical storytelling is kind of my wheelhouse. Like a lot of my theatre shows that I've made and some of the ones I've directed have been about that. Seeing it in a kid's book, there's something really lovely about that and kind of something that might be seen as quite an adult or even possibly slightly dry sort of form being introduced to a kid in a really exciting Mm. way. And yeah, it was just a really nice... uh, I think a really bold choice. Yeah, really unusual. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I really like, it's the sweet kernel of truth in the adventures and the misadventures that they're slightly too random, really, to have made up. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Like, when um, the first day they set up their theatre and they don't know about, like, theatre laws in this city, and so they immediately, like, attract the attention of the police and get moved on. Yeah. Because they haven't got a license to perform. And then right away, the van gets jammed in this little tiny narrow street. And the yeah. nuns come and like give them a push out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. It's great. Yeah. And then so our, our protagonist kind of keeping a journal all the way through this. Yeah. I, I love this bit as well. One afternoon while we were having a picnic, Chloe and I found a shiny red purse. I put it over my shoulder and wiggled my hips from side to side like a fancy lady. Signore, signore, look at my new purse, I shouted. But inside, but inside we found a card with Signora Carlotta printed on it and an address. Mum made us track the card person down and return her purse. Carlotta was so happy she invited us to a party at her pizza garden. We ate little pizzas with thin crusts until our bellies puffed up and we watched people dancing under the sparkly lights. 
it fits our theme really of her education for that year was yeah. going away and doing that and that that's kind of as valid as it's briefly mentioned that she and her sister do their lessons in the evening before yeah. bed that they're doing some sort of i don't know like correspondence course or just yeah. reading maybe so there's like a little nod to you know we did something to keep up but basically what they're doing they learn italian like she learns to spell a bunch of italian words yeah. like due bambine <laughs> and la signora and la pasta you know like the things she needs to know like we're two little girls and i want some pasta with an egg (laughs) (laughs) the little sister chloe is so little that she can sleep in a drawer yes which feels really sweet like so she must have been tiny when they left she's performing by the end of the year a little bit but she must have been about one or two it like, feels so cosy. Yeah. And there's this interesting thing in it about performance that, like, uh, the protagonist is very shy until she puts her mask on. And then she can go out there and roar like a lion and sing like a bird. Yeah. You know? Like, and, oh, it's, there's this great bit where, like, um, Chloe's supposed to go on and perform and Chloe's the baby. And she gets frightened of the audience and yeah. cries and runs off stage and then there's this brilliant line about like I put on Chloe's tiny panda mask and it was still wet on the inside with her tears and no oh it's oh, it's beautiful it's really beautiful and like you said she's keeping a journal all the way through all these like normal like annoying things as well so they like they're playing this game where they're stomping around frightening the pigeons and then Chloe the little one steps on a dog's tail and gets bitten it's just written up in this very like young child's diary way well it's got all like little pictures and stuff in the in the journal and that as well um and she's pasted in the paper wrappers that came around the fruit yeah and the market store so you can look at all that on the end papers it's really beautiful i feel like if you were to give this to a child i think the most interesting bit might be the end papers (laughs) because (laughs) it's seven-year-old level writing you know it's got those crooked shapes and that real attention to detail and that sort of fun kind of spelling where you just write it how it sounds. But there's something fascinating about it being true as well, right? Yeah, like It's a definitely. true story. Yeah. I really like the puppets as well. Yeah. Like the way that like some of them are more like masks. A lot of them are paper. Should we say a bit about the art style actually? Because I've just said it looks good, but I haven't really described it. It sort of looks like coloured pencil. Yeah. And it's got um, this quite naive perspective about it. The faces are very big and round yeah. and expressive. But also it's like really good drawings of, you know, recognisable landmarks in Italy too. So you sort of always know where they are. Yeah, the stuff that isn't people feels like it's drawn much more realistically. Mm, like, yeah. it's still cartoony, like you've got these little cars and stuff, but like... The sort of the town square scene, you've got like the van and the fountain that are sort of sketched out quite well, but all of the people are kind of like... Oh, I love like the big Italian men with like tiny little espresso cups. Yeah. Watching them get stuck in the alley and not helping until the nuns come and give them a look. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who's this format? I think in terms of age range, being read to like three and then yeah. reading to yourself, maybe from like six or something. Yeah. I think maybe it might be a really nice one as well if, like, if you were parent or parents with kids and you're, like, relocating or moving away somewhere. But I think it's also probably really interesting to children who have never had a year out of school and probably won't. 
Yeah. Because I think when you're in that school system, and everybody you know probably is in that school system, and it just feels like it's what everybody does. And I think it is interesting and important to remind people that there are options, that Mm. not everybody does this, that some people choose to do it otherwise, and that that's not less valid as a way of getting educated. Also, if you've got a kid in your life who's maybe a budding writer or a storyteller, like I think this would be a really good thing to give. There's always that moment, especially if you're into writing, when you first clock that stories are just made up by people, that they don't just exist in this kind of unreachable plane. And I think this really breaks down that wall really well. Well, and it's so easy to see the relationship between the diaries as they were written then and then how that gets turned into a book. If you're interested in the process, there's a lot to see there. And that would be really interesting to look at as well, maybe in a classroom. Yeah, yeah, in terms of like a primary school, like a class on story structure. Yeah, yeah. I might do it, actually. I might I might nab that. I do a <laughs> bit of stuff in primary school sometimes. It would be really good for that. Because a lot of my stuff that I write for theatre shows comes from quite mundane starting points a lot of the time. So I do a lot of stuff with people about kind of valuing those mundane happenings as being kind of as important. Like this is the grit that gets into the oyster that makes the pearl. Yeah, like, so I think it would be a a really nice way of going like, look, this was just kind of a little sort of jotting of stuff that happened every day and now it's turned into this really lovely thing. Yeah. You could use it to encourage journal keeping and note keeping and be like, you know, if you find some scraps of paper, do glue them in. Definitely. Because look how beautiful it looks all these years later, just all pasted together. Yeah, completely. Are we ready to move on, do you think? I think so, yeah. But yeah, get it into schools, even Definitely. even though the core message is that it's okay not to be in school. I mean, that's a good segue. Like, the Windsinger edition that I have is clearly an edition that was made to use in schools. It's got, like, a bunch of questions and exercises at the end. And I find mm. that a very interesting choice for a book to study in school. <laughs> <laughs> Quite brave. Yeah, it is brave, but I think valuable. Oh, for sure. It was like, but we've talked about this as well. This book was so in the zeitgeist. Yes, it's weird how quickly it sank. Because I I feel like it was such a big deal in the very early 2000s. It won the Blue Peter Young Fiction Award. It was shortlisted for the Carnegie, I think. It was a really big deal. Yeah. But when I went to Waterstones to get this copy, I said to the guy behind the desk, like, oh, have you got the wind singer? And he went... Oh, I've not heard of that one. And yeah. I was like, what? What do you mean? Like, yeah. <laughs> what are you talking about? It was such a phenomenon. As you tweeted, like, where on earth is our TV series? I mean, especially because William Nicholson's a TV writer. He could adapt it himself. And it so shows, like... Which makes it an amazing read. I remember making loads of fan art for this book. Right, right, I right, right. I remember my drawings of the main characters. And the, the hairdos with all the different colour ribbons, I remember drawing that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, yeah. we should stop faffing around and I, sh- I should summarise the book. Yeah. So, The Windsinger is a story of two siblings, twins, who live in this city called Aramanth. They're about ten. They're called Kestrel and Bowman. And Aramanth is a city where the most important thing the ruling factor in your life is how well you do in an annual exam. And you start taking an annual exam when you're two, and you stop when you're dead. And then your score determines 
everything about your life. The city was arranged in its districts in concentric rings. The outermost ring, in the shadow of the walls, was formed by the great cube-shaped apartment blocks of Grey District. Next came the low-rise apartments that made up Maroon District, and the crescents of small terraced houses of Orange District, where the Half family lived. Nearest the central sector of the city lay the broad ring of Scarlet District, a region of roomy, detached houses, each with its own garden, laid out in a pleasing maze of twisting lanes, so that each house felt special and different, though of course they were all painted red. And finally and most gloriously, at the heart of the city, there was White District. Here was the imperial palace where the emperor, Creoth VI, the father of Aramanth, looked out over his citizen children. And so the book starts with Bowman and Kestrel's baby sister's first exam. And it's this really heartbreaking scene of this, like, exam hall full of babies getting scored Hmm. and like the parents really pressuring the babies to like remember one two buckle my shoe and recognize the most amount of pictograms and you know be the most charming in the like the social development bit and you know stack as many blocks as possible and pin pin their baby sister is just not interested Hmm. in sitting the exam she won't stack the blocks she won't talk to the examiner like, she's just not complying. And she's a baby, and the whole family feels so sad. So that this, so Kestrel, the girl, is the more fiery of the two twins. Bowman's very thoughtful and very timid and very shy and very compliant. And Kestrel has this fiery, fiery temper, quick to anger. And then when she is angry, she has a really hard time calming down. So because of the sisters' exam, they're late to school, the teacher's horrible to them about it. Um, and then Kestrel enacts this act of rebellion where she runs into the central square of White District, the middle of the city, where there's this piece of art that really doesn't seem to fit with the rest of the city. It's like this, it's called the Windsinger, the eponymous Windsinger. It's like a wooden statue with like leather scoops and pipes, sort of like a musical instrument. And she puts her head in the top of the pipe and shouts and finds that it's an amplifier. It's like a microphone. If you shout into it, it booms. And so she just says all the worst things she can think of. She says all her swears and all her anger. She goes, I won't try harder. I won't reach higher. I won't make tomorrow better than today. Eventually the police come and get her down and she's promised these very severe punishments and so she decides I can't stay here so she has to escape and so she and her brother Bowman decide to escape Aramanth on this mission to find the voice of the Windsinger which is like this little bit of the Windsinger statue that's missing Because they believe in this prophecy that if they put it back in, the inequality in Aramanth will be over. Um, So they go on this big quest. And also this other boy from school comes with them. Although that's not planned. He's like the least liked boy in school. He's called Mumpo. He's really unpopular. The teacher's horrible to him. The kids are horrible to him. Kestrel's horrible to him even. But he's decided that he loves Kestrel. And so he comes with them. And then they go on this like 
amazing adventure. Yeah. What's the first thing you want to say about it? In in some ways, it's almost like a little bit of a paint by numbers dystopia, isn't it? But it it kind of but when it gets onto the exam stuff, it rings so true. And like yeah. I I was kind of reading it, thinking like. God, if I read this at such a young age, how did I stay so compliant with the school system? Because <laughs> yeah. it's, you know, there's this this real real sense of how oppressive and unfair exam systems are. Yeah. And I think I kind of always knew that, but you just kind of go with it, right? It felt really chilling. Yeah. As a dystopia, because it's really, really not too dissimilar from the world we live in. Exactly. I think that's what makes it such a genius dystopia for children, because like a lot of dystopias start with a what if idea, you know, like Mm. you've got the giver. Well, what if we had full surrogacy and like families were built by the government where they picked a man and a woman and a boy child and a girl child? That's how the giver goes. Like or 1984. What if we were watched all the time? Like the idea of the what if being like, what if what we tell children in school is true? What if really the rest of their life was completely ruled by how they're going to do in the next exam? Mm. Because that is a pressure that all children in schools know. Mm. And, you know, whether they're like you and I were as children and they, you know, do okay with it, or whether it's a real nightmare, that Mm. is a pressure that almost any child you give this book will know. And so to elevate that and to say, like, yes, you're right, it is wrong, it is wrong the way you're mm. being treated. It is mm. oppressive. Mm. It is unfair. I think it's like so smart and also like so subversive as yeah. a book to have in like kids' school libraries and to be studying in school. Like it's very subversive. I think, you know, it's really genius. It's kind of taking it through to its logical conclusion, isn't it? Because yeah. you're, you're right, like that is the message that you're given. And kind of like I remember the huge frustration of, I remember getting to like, Year six, that's I was like 11, and you're being told these are the most important exams you will do yeah. until your GCSEs. These will decide where you go in your school, this will affect so much, and all the rest of it. And then you get past it, and, and then you get to your GCSEs, and they're going, These will be the most important exams you will do until your A levels. And then you get to your A levels, and I, I had teachers saying to me, like, Oh, your GCSEs didn't really matter that much. Yeah. And you're like, What? What? <laughs> There's a point in the story where Kestrel is, you know, she's gone and she's run into the centre of town to the wind singer and shouted down it for ages. And um, they've got all these euphemisms as well. She's going to get taken to special teaching. And then later on, like, a, a dad gets sent off to prison, but it's called residential study camp. Yeah! And it sort of feels very sort of like Stalin's Russia kind of euphemistic. Very 1984. Yeah. Like, when she gets sent off for special teaching... Um, it's because she's been so disruptive and she gets into this corridor where you can see through a sort of one-way window to these rows of, like, children, but all of the children are, like, old and they've got, yes. like, wrinkled skin and she's like, oh, my God, this is awful. Like, this is where you stay at school forever. Yeah, and the, the administration woman comes in who's from Scarlet, so she's sort of upper-middle-class admin and... Uh, Kestrel decides on the spot, like, I'm I'm just going to be well-behaved at this point. That feels like the best thing. And this woman comes in clearly expecting her to be, like, kicking off and trying to break stuff because she's like, oh, like, everyone who gets sent here is, like, beyond, like... And she's, like, crying and saying, I'm so sorry, I don't know what's happened. So this woman's like, oh, well, let's let's go and see about this. This is, like, there's clearly been some mistakes. So yeah. takes her back out into the courtyard and is chatting to some of, like, the white-robed 
high examiners and sort of saying like, obviously there's been a mistake here. And they're just like, what? you like, you got given an order. Have you taken it upon yourself to disobey that order? Like the chief examiner himself said that, so what, you just think that your judgment's better yeah. than his? Like what are you doing here? And it's just this bit where like this woman like looks at Kestrel and sort of just like mouths sorry. And then Kestrel like squeezes her hands like, it's okay. And um, thanks for trying and immediately runs to like an open door that she's spotted. But it's yeah. that's that thing that's so oppressive of like everyone is engaged mm. in this. There's a level above and a level above and you're going to get wrong off someone else. Yeah. But it's this complete unbreakable unhappiness. We should zoom in on the classroom because this happens at a granular level in the classroom where the children are ranked according to their test scores. And that ranking is constantly being displayed on the blackboard at the front of the room yeah. and updated according to current behaviour. Yeah, yeah. And they sit depending where, like, they get up and move. Like, if you get moved to the top of the class, which, again, they used to literally yeah. do until, like, not that long ago, right? <laughs> and it's so horrible. And so, like, their teacher, Dr. Batch, is trying to discipline Kestrel. And Kestrel's not having it. And he's like, I will dock points. I will move you down the class. And so she walks to the back of the class, to the bottom of the class. And sits next to Mumpo. What can you do to me now? I'm bottom of the class. And so then he uses Mumpo to punish her, which is mm. also really horrible. Like, clearly he's aware that this child doesn't have any friends, that mm. this child is uncared for and unpopular. So he's like, ooh, Kestrel's got a boyfriend. He's like, ooh, Mumpo and Kestrel sitting in a tree. Yeah. Like, yeah, like to try and shame her. Yeah, he's a bully in a way that is like it's fictionalized. But I'd like I had teachers like that. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like that is also completely a thing. Like, well, and that's how Mumpo gets swept up into the adventure as well. Is like Mumpo isn't friends with Kestrel and Bowman, but because Kestrel has sat next to him, and because nobody ever shows him any affection, he just latches on. And he's in love with her. Yes, he is. In this way that's like very uncomfortable for Kestrel. And Kestrel really wants to react with violence toward Mumpo. Like Kestrel wants to hit him. And it's mm. Bowman that's like, it's not his fault. You can't hit him. Like, mm. no. Um, and he just ends up tagging along on the adventure. And I think he's a very interesting addition to this story. Because I feel like the traditional quest story would have Kestrel and Bowman. It wouldn't have a Mumpo. Like, that they both seem to dislike him so much to start with, that he's described in a way that I think even as a reader, it's really hard to like him at first. Hmm. Like, he's really pathetic. He's really needy. His nose is always dribbling on his yeah. top lip. Yeah, and Kestrel says, why don't you wipe your nose? And he's just like, it'll just run again. He's made deliberately repulsive, but he's also, like, very clearly a neglected child. It's not yeah. his fault at all. I think Mumpo's a really interesting character. I mean, he's he's got one of the clearest arcs of all of them. Oh, yeah, he's the one having the typical hero's journey. Yeah, and, and also it's like he's this character who is, like, completely despised and... He's almost like Shakespeare's clown, right? Like, he's aware yeah. of the ridiculousness of the whole system and points out what's wrong because he's he just says things as they are in a way he's wise and in a way he's a bit the heart of the story 
Well, I think he is. I think he's, in a lot of ways, he's the protagonist, isn't he? I think it's interesting that not only is he disliked by the characters in the story, he's written in a way that makes you dislike him as well. If we're going to bring in even the Trunchbull gender corner, there's some interesting gender work at play. (laughs) Oh yeah, definitely. Kestrel is the fighty, fiery, wants to just fight away out of everything. And then Bowman is empathic to the point where it's a superpower. He sort of tunes into Mumpo and feels all this overwhelming loneliness and is like, oh my God. There's this really good line about like the dichotomy between Kestrel and Bowman where like Bowman keeps crying and he sees it as one of his faults as he can't stop crying and... You know, he's saying to Kestrel, I'm not brave like you. I can't do what you do. And she says, well, that's the way it is. I do and you feel. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are some, like, twin tropes about that. They've got, like, the twin telepathy, which obviously is ridiculous. And, like, a massive trope in children's literature that, like, twins can talk in their brains. But it's also a big part of the plot. Bowman can sort of get in touch with anybody's feelings. And sometimes yeah. he can't help but do it. Yeah. And it makes him a very fearful person. But at points, like, he almost weaponizes it. Yeah, it's really interesting how manipulative he can be. Yeah. So the, the first place that the children go to when they run away is into the sewers. Hmm. And they run into this society called the Mud People. And the Mud People is very clearly a utopian ideal to contrast against Aramanth. So hmm. it's a classless society, basically an agrarian society. They farm these things called mud nuts in the sewage which are actually Mm. delicious and i used to like fantasize about being a real food when i was 11 (laughs) because it's so like beautifully described imagine it like chestnuts or potatoes like something like that like a combination of the two Mm. it's like a hot chestnut crossed with a sweet potato yes something like like that yeah and they just spend most of their time farming and then getting high and getting high (laughs) picking tixa leaves that grow in the mud and they don't really have leaders. The people that they refer to as queens are old women who look after babies. And also yeah. they're holding on to all the memories. They're fat, which I really like. It's an interesting fat politics that, like, they're happy and well-fed and strong and fat. And yeah, it's, it's it's really good fat representation, yes. actually, isn't it? Yeah, I yeah. really like it. I've always loved the mud people. I mean, they're not perfect. They're, I mean, for a start, the society seems to be quite sexist. Mm-hmm. Like, um, you know, the women are expected to work and the men can go out all day chewing tixa leaves and just getting high. But yeah. still, like, the kids have a really lovely time there. They've got a mission, but they almost just want to stay there. Especially Mumpo. Mumpo fits so well into the mud people. Like, he immediately makes friends. Mumpo seems, like, disgusting and underfed and, like, smelly and sticky, but everybody's covered in mud. Yeah, so he's yeah, no yeah. dirtier than anybody else. He's doing like high diving competitions. And yeah, he's in actually the like stuff, very huh? physically able. Yeah. He's actually like quite athletic and something that you wouldn't suspect about him at school because probably nobody includes him in any games. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like yeah. put him in a different environment and he really flourishes and he gets well into the ticks and leaves as well. <laughs> Points quite near the end, which like I don't think it's too spoilery, but they're like kind of like reaching a really difficult point in their journey and wondering how they're going to manage without any food or water. And Mumpo was like, well, we could just chew ticks leaves because like, we'll still be hungry, but we won't feel hungry and it won't matter for a couple of hours. And they're like, yeah, all right. And then they just, so they just chew a bunch of leaves and then they're just like marching down the road singing and going like, ah, you were, you were stuck in the mud and we were all muddy. Wasn't it brilliant? 
And then it wears off and they're like, no, we're really hungry, actually. And now my head hurts and my mouth's really dry. And you're like, oh, William Nicholson, you. <laughs> well, I could just one more thing on the mud people, I think is interesting. It's like, it's that classic dystopia thing. Like the mud people are just like this forgotten underclass. Like they literally live in the sewers. Yeah. The chief examiner initially uses it to kestrels are kind of like, you don't think you can go lower. Look at this. Like, I'm going to take you down to the sewers. Look how you can see people, like there are people who live down here. This is what is below us. Like, yeah. this is why we keep doing it. So we're not them. But then they get down there and it's just this, like, they're just like, oh, we don't have to worry about anything. Like, like oh, you poor skinny things. Let me read that bit, actually. It's page 109 in my book. And I want to talk about their accent then as well. So um, this is a child mud person talking to her mum after... Kestrel, Bowman and Mumpo arrive. Why are they so thin, Mum? Not enough to eat. No mud nuts up yonder, see? No mud nuts. They don't have the mud for it. No mud. Don't you forget pollen. You my lucky girl. What is that accent? Well, it's West Country, which right. is it's kind of Devon, which is standard go-to Paul Pearson country bumpkin accent. Right, yeah. And it's, I think, because it's like old-timey English kind of like... Like, there is a laziness to it as well. I think there is yeah. a thing where it just, like, stands in for... I don't want to criticise it too heavily, but there is there is a bit of... But the way they're presented, like, it's a bit sort of like EastEnders style, like, oh, the women at home and the men going off and after the harvest and getting high and not coming home yeah. too late. And the women were like, oh, what am I going to do with it? It's very sort of like yeah. kitchen sink comedy kind of... Which I think, again, is like sort of romanticisation of of working class life that I think is a bit at play. If we're doing our favourite MVP character section, it's Ira Hath all day for me. Yeah, so tell us a bit about her, because I think we haven't made clear who she is. She's Kestrel and Bowman and Pimpin's mother. Named after Ira Manth, who was a prophet of the Manth people. She's got that kind of playful, dramatic thing, but she's a bit of a hippie mum. And is just, like, completely anti-establishment. When the kids are away, she goes and does her own windsinger camp out, sitting on it, having a picnic and doing a profit thing. So she's got a, a bedspread that she's cut up into clothes. That This bedspread has always been a quiet, private rebellion because it's rainbow-coloured, basically. But she wears this as clothes and walks the centre of town. She liked being a wife and a mother, but she had just discovered she liked being a prophetess more. And then she starts getting, like, buns and lemonades out and starts saying, oh, unhappy people, the time has come to sit and eat buns, which is what she did. She's there overnight, she's prepared for it, and the next morning she's still there and people show up to be like, ah, what's this daft woman going to say now? Like, this would be funny. Let's hear your prophecy then, they cried. Go on, say, oh, unhappy people. Oh, unhappy people, said Ira Hath. She spoke rather more quietly than they liked, and somehow it didn't sound so funny anymore. Then again, soft and sad, she said, Oh, unhappy people, no poverty, no crime, no war, no kindness. This wasn't funny at all. The people in the crowd shuffled their feet and avoided each other's eyes. Then for a third time, most quietly of all, Ira Hath said, Oh, unhappy people, I hear your hearts crying for want of kindness. No one ever said such things in Aramanth. The people heard her in shocked silence. Then they began to leave in ones and twos, and Ira Hath knew she had proved herself a true prophetess because none could bear to hear her speak. Wow. 
What a good line. It's great, isn't it? Yeah. Favourite characters. So yours is Ira Half? Yeah. I think mine's Bowman. Yeah, that's fair. I love the way that he embodies all these like supposedly feminine traits. Like, and I, I love that he's manipulative. Like, I love that he's a boy who can't stop crying. Um, and that he's so sensitive and emotionally intelligent. And that he's willing to use that to his own gain. You want to talk about the violence, didn't yeah. you? Yeah, if we're going to recommend this to children, and I do, I think we should have like a good talk about like appropriateness and violence. I read this when I was 10 or 11. How old were you? I think nine. Were you upset by the violence? I don't remember being upset by the violence particularly. I don't remember a lot about it, but what I have is emotional texture. Mm. And I don't remember it being upsetting. I remember it was very upsetting to me in places. Mm. Like, toward the end, there are some quite violent, gory bits. Mm. Like, Mm. some quite shocking deaths. Mm. Not of any of the main characters, but still. Those images are what stayed with me from when I first read it. Like, Not Mm. that I didn't like it, I loved this series and I read it over and over again. But like... Mm. The, the violence did affect me. Like I did find it shocking. It's the thing is, it is not. It's not fantasy violence. It's not this bloodless fantasy. People do get like swords thrust through them and die. I think it's good. I think it's really good. And I think most kids will be able to handle it. Like from like like you said, nine ten up. Mm. But be aware, maybe if you've got someone who's more sensitive to that kind of thing. Yeah. I think that's fair. I mean, I think it pulls punches with a bit. I think it softens the very sharpest edges. But, yeah, there is still, you know, a lot of death and sacrifice. There's a lot of animals dying, and some children are very sensitive to that. Mm. Children who really love animals. Yeah. Kids who really love wolves, for example, might find that bit really upsetting. Yeah, yeah. Like, there is some quite gory animal there death. Is a, there is a whole lot of wolf death. Yeah. If we're getting into, like, who's this for, I would say give it to your reluctant reader. It's really fast-paced. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can tell he's a film writer. Yeah. Yeah. The language is really accessible as well. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's really not difficult. Yeah. Um, the chapters are short. It's yeah. very action-packed. It's quite dialogue-heavy. Yeah, really good route into reading. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. Give this to someone who hates exams. Yeah. <laughs> Give this to someone who loves sitting exams and is really good at them. Yeah. Yeah, that's important as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, History buffs, I think, would really enjoy it. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I say I read it at nine, which is probably the lower end, but I think this would stay to kind of 14, I think, it would Mm. still. Well, and then there are two sequels, and those would carry you through teenage, I think. So that was episode 21 of Even the Trunchbull. And remember, we're going monthly now. So episode 22 will be on the first Thursday of November. Yes. Lovely to be back in your years. Um, Yeah. Thanks for listening. Once again, if you've any thoughts on books you loved as a kid. Or loved now as a kid. Let us know or ask a grown up to let us know. We're at eventhetrunchbull at gmail.com or catch us on Twitter and Facebook at TrunchbullPod or on Instagram, we are at eventhetrunchbull. Intro music for this episode and every episode is What a Wonderful Day by Shane Ivers. 
And remember, kids' books can be for everyone. Because we've all been kids. Even, Even the, the Trunchbull. trunchbull.